Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Joe DeVille, who's a lecturer in mobile work at Lancaster Uni, about his new book, which is published by Routledge in 2015, called Lived Economies of Default, Consumer Credit, Debt Collection, and the Capture of Affect. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to have you on. This uh, is a fascinating book uh, that talks to lots and lots of different things about um, how we live our lives in contemporary society, both in terms of the kind of everyday mundaneness of using credit cards and stuff like that through to really big questions about how we theorize people's kind of emotions, their subjectivities, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And I wonder if we could kick off by thinking about one of the words in the title, sure. default. Yeah. So what is default? What does that term mean? And, and why uh, was it kind of important to the book? Um, so on the one hand, it's a technical term um, referring to the moment at which a creditor deems that a borrower has broken the terms of their credit agreement. Um, and I think for many years it kind of stayed there as a, as a technical term used within the industry and understood by people working in and around the industry. But I guess one of the reasons that it ended up in the title is that it's become um, something, a word that captures something about our age um, to a degree. Um, you know, speaking right now on the cusp of uh, what, uh, at, a, at a moment when um, Greece is potentially on, on the verge of default, or that's certainly something that's in the air. Um, I think in many ways we're at a moment in which default or the threat of default has become, not, not the defining, but a defining um, uh, concept or a way a way of thinking about um, our relations to to economies of, of all sorts and and of course um, all this this all I guess started with the sequence of defaults on um, subprime mortgages um, in the states. So I guess you, if you trace some of the kind of um, issues that we're experiencing in the in a variety of global economies. Um, these can be traced back to a series of, of defaults and um, overlaid with the constant threat um, of, of default. And so that, that was the kind of backdrop um, that I particularly am interested in consumer credit defaults. So these are people who are defaulting on their consumer credit um, debts. So these are debts on credit cards and personal loans. These tend not to be secured on property. So that we're not talking about um, default on, on home loans, which um, is something that hasn't really been investigated in, any, in, any, in much depth. Where, where did the interest in... Uh idea of default generally and then consumer mm. credit come from was it something you were working on previously in your academic career or yeah so i mean it's, the book kind of um comes to a degree um out of my phd research though i've built on it quite a lot since then um and i started well before the um so-called crisis broke and i became interested in the proliferation of consumer credit which was being talked about to a degree at the time both academically and within um, popular discourse as a as a problem. So there was a kind of to a degree an awareness that there was this 
spread this ballooning amount of consumer credit um, out there. Um, <clears throat> uh, but one of the things that I felt was that it wasn't really being investigated, um, perhaps with enough nuance academically. I mean, there's some great sort of path-defining texts out there, people like George Ritzer um, writing uh, about proliferation of credit and so forth. But no one, I think, had really looked in sufficient enough detail at some of the, the, the kind of real specificities um, of our daily intersections with consumer credit. So that was, that was my starting point. And the first point of my research was to go and speak to some debtors. I was particularly interested in people who are struggling with, with, their, with their debts and in, with high levels of debt. Um, uh, and as soon as I went to speak to them, one of the things that you realise is the specific consequences of default, of um, having broken the, the terms of your credit agreement. And what that effectively means is being subject to the incursions and um, solicitations of um, the debt collection industry, broadly defined to include both, I'll come on to this probably in more detail later, but external debt collectors and creditors themselves collecting on, on outstanding debt. So, you know, when I was speaking to people, um, our conversation was continually interrupted by by the ringing phone. People would take me round their homes, show me folders of bulging paper containing letters from debt collectors, um, and that I guess led me to focus down specifically on this matter um, of default, rather than just sort of generic over indebtedness. Um, I became specifically interested in in the condition of um, of yeah, what happens when you when you break that this bond that you're meant to sort of treat with care um, purportedly um, with a creditor, what actually happens and um, what are some of the organisational processes that, are, that surrounded um, this, this, uh, this particular component of the credit industry. Your way of kind of getting into that, uh, framing that um, set of discussions that you've had with, with people, uh, both as you know, in the the jobs and um, on the receiving end of, of kind of the credit industry is through quite a variety of theoretical starting points. But I think two of the big ones uh, are science and technology studies and active network theory. Um, and I wonder if you could say a bit about what they are and how they're relevant um, to the investigation in the book. Yeah, so I mean, I think uh, the book is heavily influenced by a variety of approaches that come out of of those, of science and technology studies, of active network theory. So there's also a strand of economic sociology. I think it's been heavily influenced by that. So there's a series of um, translations, I guess you could call them, which appropriately enough in, in relation to that body of work, um, through which I, I draw on that work. Um, and I'd say that's kind of one pole, one important pole of the book. Um, and what I take from that work, and I do critically engage with it as well, but what I do take from that work um, is its attention on uh, on the material and I guess on the mundane um, and in my case within market settings or within and surrounding market settings anyway um, and I think what that why that was really helpful for me was to to focus on the specific um, makeup of these sets of encounters encounters between effectively creditors on the one side and borrowers slash defaulters um, on the other to look to be able to sort of trace some of the specific ways in which on the one hand 
set of organisations were attempting to uh, to manage, to to um, attach, as I refer to it in the book, people to their um, credit products through a specific set of technologies, a specific set of um, what I call devices. Um, these devices can be things as, mon as mundane as a collections letter um, to uh, a particular collections script that somebody might use to a set of um, algorithmically informed um, analytical techniques which allow you to potentially categorise debtors in a certain way. Um, so I guess it's, it's, it's that attention to the kind of, to the, to the mundane material composition of markets and the relationships between people and organisations that I think this, this body of work um, uh, was help. That's why I guess that body of work was helpful to me in that respect. Although I guess where I critically uh, or have some sort of hesitations about some of this work is that on the one hand, I think sometimes its accounts have been a little instrumental, a little clean, I would say. And that links to, um, I guess, my, the second kind of poll in the book, which is, is affect theory, um, which also has materiality at its core. However, the, the kind of emphasis is less on the specific devices and more on, um, on the body as a, a site of, uh, as a material site. And I guess what the book tries to do is to bring the two, um, approaches into dialogue, into fruitful dialogue, it's not necessarily a synthesis by any means, but to bring some of, I guess, you could call it the attention to messy and embodied life, which I think affect theory is particularly good at detecting, you could call it, to um, an SDS-informed economic sociology, um, which some of your listeners may well be quite familiar with this, but um, which um, I guess most most famously or most um, uh, the most kind of um, prominent exponent of um, of, the, of a kind of SDS informed economic social would be someone like Michel Callon. So bringing bringing this kind of work to a kind of Callonian um, economic sociology. Yeah, in, in that body of work, they um, you see the kind of attention on a whole range of uh, different devices, things like shopping carts, yeah. as, you know, making kind of transactions possible and, and stuff like this. And one of the things you do in, in, in the first substantive chapter in the book is um, to think through um, why it is people borrow, why yeah. it is people uh, get credit by discussing the credit card. And I think that's an interesting uh, device perspective yeah. on what could be just the sort of, you know, fairly sort of standard sort of psychological explanation or, you know, kind of boring mainstream economics explanation. So I wonder if you could talk through how the device perspective on the credit card um, gives us a, a kind of a different perspective on what drives people to borrow. Yeah, sure. So the, the yeah, the, the first chapter in a way is a kind of, it's an unusual chapter in the context of the book as a whole, because most of the book isn't actually about uh, the causal forces that drive people to borrow. The majority of the book is on what happens when borrowing becomes a problem. But I kind of felt that I had to answer that question whenever I sort of introduced 
what I was researching to people, both academic and non-academic, the, the, the first question that people tend to ask is, oh, right, so is your book going to explain why people get into debt? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is fair enough. Um, and I, in some senses, I saw that question as a provocation to the kind of devices um, uh, approach because the conventional answer to that, and, there are, and these conventional answers aren't wrong, necessarily it's just that they're very well rehearsed um and i think there is in some sense always a need to kind of come at these questions um, afresh um so of course things like poverty uh, money management skills uh, the um marketing of credit um the forming of certain subjectivities in certain ways, all these play, play, play a huge role in um, the reasons behind why people borrow. However, one of the things that I thought hadn't really been explored in much depth was the role of these mundane devices um, of consumer credit themselves, specifically um, payment cards and specifically the credit card. The credit card is interesting, it's kind of this symbol of consumer credit. So when you look at pretty much any academic and many popular books about about, about, about consumer credit, on the front you'll find uh, a credit card, and yet in these books you'll often find virtually no discussion of the credit card um, itself. Um, so I started to kind of look into the credit card, look, at, look into some of its history, and what you find is that this very mundane device, this thing that we have in our purses and wallets we often forget about, um, played a crucial role in the expansion of consumer credit and actually in, in the acceleration um, of the consumer credit market, particularly in the US uh, in the 1950s and the 1960s and then in the UK in the 1970s. Um, and what you specifically find is the credit card being seen as a device that could actually um, effectively tempt people into borrowing. So um, in the US and then later in the UK, the, the initial approach of the, the the credit card industry was to effectively mail um, credit cards to people completely unsolicited. So they would just send people credit cards in the post um, to people who they thought, thought might be make potential might be potential borrowers. Um, and in the US, in particular, this was done in, on a vast scale. There's this, this a period called the Great Credit Card Race where. These cards are getting sent to, to, to thousands and thousands of people. They're to all kinds of peculiar things, being uh, allegedly being sent to children, to, to ex-cons, um, um, and this was huge. This was to, to an extent about kind of market share, grabbing kind of a piece of the of the consumer credit pie um, at the time. But there was more to it than that. Um, the consumer credit industry were um, um, called uh, uh, in front of a committee in Washington, um, where they actually, in defence of this practice, produce experimental evidence of the fact that um, simply by putting a credit card in somebody's hand as opposed to making them fill in an application form for consumer credit, um, you can experimentally demonstrate that people, they'd be far more likely to borrow. So these, this kind of historical evidence provides a nice sort of, um, demonstration of, of the power of some of these mundane devices. These, these mundane devices don't just, are just passive um, in, our, in our wallets and purses. They, in, in many ways, act as affordances, act as lures for us to to, to borrow, to, to, to engage with consumer credit. Um, and a look at, so, and, and the second thing I guess is that the, the payment card industry are well, are well aware of this. There's, there's an ongoing 
I guess, battle within the payment card industry to get us to transform um, um, our, the way that we use payment cards um, with the rise of contact and payment and so forth. Uh, and in the various marketing books that surround this, you see quite explicitly the way in which the specific materiality of payment devices is invoked as having direct um, causal consequences. So these are some of the kind of things I look at in, in, in the first chapter. Not to, as I say, negate some of these kind of, uh, you could call them broader um, social forces, social and economic forces that drive uh, consumer credit uptake, but to provide a, an alternate way through some of those debates. So the, the kind of focus on, on market devices continues into the second chapter, where you're thinking through, um, I suppose, what you said earlier, that moment of, when one stops being a kind of a potential customer who might be you know, making money on interest payments and stuff and ends up uh, as a defaulting debtor yeah. um, who you know, has to be sort of dealt with in, in various ways. And you look at letters and telephone calls in the context as well as bringing um, effective theory in. And so I wonder if you could talk through what uh, the role of uh, things like letters and telephone calls are in moving defaulted debtors to repay. Yeah. So, um, certainly in the UK, and I imagine elsewhere, there's, there's this um, idea about debt collection that it involves the burly male debt collector coming to your door, um, knocking on the door and demanding repayment, potentially taking um, bits, you're taking a TV, taking whatever else he can get his hands on in, in, in repayment for debt. Uh, this is an uh, extremely niche part of the debt collection. The vast, ma- vast majority of contemporary debt collection uh, work involves contact at a distance. And the two, I guess, the workhorses of um, contact at a distance in the debt collection industry um, are these two mundane technologies of the telephone call um, and the letter. Although it's increasingly being, su- being supplemented by things like email um, and SMS. Yeah, um, But... Still, I'd say it's still predominantly um, letters, letters and phone calls. They're, they're sort of tried and tested within the industry. Um, and the, I mean, when I say tested, I mean quite literally tested, and we can perhaps get onto that in, later. But um, yeah, so the second chapter, I guess, deals with the what I would call the intimacies um, of default. It goes into people's homes and tries to understand with some precision, what it means to live a life of default. And what it effectively means is to have to confront these two technologies on an extremely regular basis. Um, most mornings, you, well, I should say, first of all, that most um, in the UK, it's typical for defaulting debtors to owe debts to multiple collectors. So a typical defaulting debtor may owe debts, let's say, five or six different creditors. Each one of those creditors will... In a, in a situation of default, most likely be attempting to to um, convince that debtor to repay them, and that's fact to repay them before they repay somebody else. So it is kind of race um, to get what in the industry is known as share of wallet. So you want to get as big a share of someone's wallet um, as you possibly can. Um, now there are specific regulations in the UK that prevent collectors from quote unquote harassing. Um, debtors and that puts limits on say the amount of telephone calls that can be sent out the amount of letters that can be sent out but once you have this kind of interaction effect of different agencies contacting uh, a defaulting debtor cumulatively what that feels like and how that's experienced 
um, by a defaulting debtor is as a kind of ongoing bombardment um, of solicitations, an extremely bewildering bombardment of solicitations. The phone ringing at pretty much, well, potentially, potentially uh, uh, from early in the morning uh, and, and until relatively late in the evening. It's not uncommon for collectors to start making telephone calls at around 8 a.m., finish at around um, 8 p.m., sometimes later. Um, letters coming through the door demanding repayment, mixed in with things like other outstanding bills, utility bills, and so forth. Um, and this generates a particular state, um, something that I describe in the book as a state of um, anxious anticipation. So a kind of constant forward-looking um, bodily and emotional state which, in which a debtor will be constantly um, expecting the next prompt, expecting the next solicitation. And what I kind of argue in that chapter is that this is not just a kind of byproduct of um, the situation of being in default. In many ways, this is uh, quite... Um, uh, deliberately created uh, embodied state um, on the part of the debt collection industry. Um, this kind of intimate, anxious state acts as a, as a real kind of opportunity for the collector that's looking to collect an outstanding debt. Um, what it will be doing is trying to sort of insert itself into this milieu um, and to try and make its approach heard above, I guess, the noise of these various different solicitations. And the way it will do that is through a variety of, of threats um, and, and solicitations, not all of which are, are, are forceful. Um, and it's this kind of mixture of these threats that, that makes up the kind of book um, carried out and um, delivered both over the telephone and the litter that makes up the kind of the vast majority of, of the work of the collection industry. Yeah, because you, you talk about this um, in more detail in chapter three, where you, you kind of um, describe the the idea of kind of a debtor being attached yeah. to their to their debt, and I wonder if you could say so what you mean by that, yeah, um, and how that works because the the rest of the book I think is is a very you know kind of interesting and detailed engagement with how this industry actually works. Yeah, um, yeah. So attachment, I guess, as I've already mentioned, is a kind of key conceptual uh, device, I guess to think about the relational composition of this specific organisation or um, organisational account between organisations um, and individuals. Um, what I try and do is look at attachment operating across a variety of, I guess you call them modalities. Um, so all markets involve attachment. Um, that is attempts by organisations to try and um, integrate themselves into our lives in such a way that we um, buy the things that they want us to buy, consume the services that we want them to consume in a certain way. And that's no different with, with credit. Um, when it comes to consumer credit, there are all kinds of um, devices that are designed, on the one hand, to kind of tempt us all or to, to, to convince us that taking out credit is a good idea. These are kind of a potential attachment devices. And that they're also, in, and because of the fact that this is, this is a financial product that sort of stretches out over time, this becomes particularly important. There are also a, a series of um, legal devices as well that effectively attach us particularly firmly to consumer credit. 
So when we sign a consumer credit agreement, we are making an agreement to repay that agreement according to a particular schedule. This is an attachment device. This, is, this has become a legal attachment, which forms the basis of all um, contemporary credit um, contracts and credit agreements. So that's kind of one modality of attachment, the kind of legal modality. But there are a range of other um, attachments um, which constitute our relationship to credit on the one hand, and on the other, um, which credit itself can become attached to. So um, one might be, for instance, the, the guilt that we might feel about yeah. not repaying. So that's the effective attachment. Yeah, exactly. So that might, so we might feel, so well, there is a legal obligation, fine, but then we might, on top of that might be layered the kind of feeling that we should be repaying. <clears throat> As we, all of us, as we go through our daily life, we have a range of other attachments. We have attachments to our, to our families, to our, the places we live, to our friends and so forth. Um, one of the things I look at in the book, uh, in, the, in the second chapter and, and to a degree in the third, is the way that these again become um, affordances or for the collections industry. Well, certainly what happens is you find, what happens is that um, credit becomes mixed up, becomes entwined with some of these attachments. So this ostensibly sort of dyadic relationship between creditor and borrower becomes spread around a range of other parties, um, uh, ranging from other family members to, to, to friends uh, and, to, and to a range of other potential advisors. So this, is kind of, this is kind of some of the ways that this attachment becomes um, distributed. Um, what I do in chapter three is look at um, the kind of long history of the, the, well, the beginnings, the way that the industry began to think about um, a bit more strategically about how to intersect with some of these um, domestic uh, attachments. Um, there's actually quite a nice kind of like serendipitous point of connection here. Um, back in the early days um, of the consumer credit industry in the United States, um, upon situations of default, um, the uh, courts would often um, uh, issue a writ a writ of attachment, a writ, a writ of body attachment, which effectively compelled uh, a debtor to appear before a court. So this is the kind of writ of body attachment, which provides quite a nice um, summary, I think, of what really is at stake here. Um, when you borrow, you are attached to your debt. The, the, the way that happens has changed over time. So historically, we had debtors' prisons, for instance. People could be compelled to... Uh, appear in front of court and potentially we could be incarcerated for, for non-repayment. We've, um, in many, most countries, not all, have abolished, abolished um, imprisonment for, for, um, for non-repayment of debt. However, in its place, a sequence of, a, a series of techniques um, um, replaced the, these kind of juridical, these, these very forceful, forceful juridical um, approaches. I mean, there are, of course, still um, other juridical approaches that are important nowadays. And this is what I document in Chapter 3. Um, where I talk about, I look at the way in which the debt collection industry, in particular in the US, which is in some senses the, the testing ground for the majority of um, technologies of consumer credit, the industry in the 1940s and 1950s started to realise that it as an industry was perhaps more so than many other industries, and perhaps if not any other industry, was really concerned with um, negotiating this very intimate relationship that people had um, to their debt and, and, and to their credit products. Um, back then, uh, as in the UK, as in many countries, 
um, collection of consumer credit when people are effectively going to your door, knocking on knocking knocking your door and um, and asking for repayment of a debt. Uh, this is often done by individuals, kind of working in small and very small companies, often kind of uh, sole traders, effectively going to people's doors. Um, in industry literature in the 1940s and 1950s, what you start to find is this industry realizing that it was a business concerned explicitly with the management of emotions. Um, this was a real revelation to the industry at the time. They suddenly, and this, this is kind of coming in the context of psychology as a discipline was um, coming to the fore. Suddenly, this, the people in the, industry, in the industry started talking to one another in terms of the management of debtor emotions. The industry started to categorize debtors in terms of their emotions. So you find kind of endless lists of um, debtor emotions in the industry literature at the time. So well, a debtor has 10 typical emotions ranging from fear to anxiety to pride and so on and so forth. Um, and debt collectors are talking, talking about themselves as practical psychologists. Um, their, their business was really the, the management of some of these kind of intimate uh, encounters that they were having with debtors on their doorsteps. Um, that was all well and good. Um, but a lot of this was effectively just talking about what they were already doing using new language. It didn't really necessarily change that much about their day to day business. In the 1960s, however, with the rise of, and again in the US, and the rise of automation, uh, so this is particularly kind of punch card automation, what this enabled the uh, debt collection industry to do was to start to really operationalize some of these concepts. So you had people talking about, well, can we devise an ideal um, letter trajectory? So a sequence of letters that are sent to uh, a defaulting debtor that will really maximise this state of anxiety. And they talked about it as anxiety. They talked about it in those terms. Um, one particular experiment I talk about took place in the 1960s involving around 600,000 letters, so a huge number of letters, a huge, a huge sample, um, which effectively involved sending out this seven-letter sequence, or sorry, I should say, sending out sequences of letters and trying to, and trying to understand exactly what prompts would lead to kind of optimal success financially. And how you could effectively manage over this course of a sequence of letters the, 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 this kind of anxious state of a debtor. You didn't want to push it too hard at the beginning. You kind of wanted to kind of give the, give, you know, start gently, give them a kind of opportunity to repay at first, and then kind of save your, your big guns until the, until to the end of the process. Um, which is always, this, is, this, is, this is something that had always been done within the collection industry, but it always been done on a kind of um, an ad hoc basis. There was some kind of rudimentary experimentation, but it was very, very, uh, very basic. But with the kind of rise of automation, with the ability to start to kind of customise letters quite simply via these kind of proto forms of computerization, with the ability to start to tabulate the responses that you were getting back, you could really start to do some kind of effective analytics on this. Um, and suddenly you have this, this combination of the industry, industry realising its work is centrally concerned with the management of, of, of affect, I would call it, the emotion they would call it, although I should say those two things are not um, necessarily... necessarily um, um, as equating directly to one another, mapping on a kind of one-to-one basis. But anyway, I'll, I'll leave that to one side. Um, yeah, combined with these kind of these these, these processes, this kind of proto-computerization, really was marked the the point at which the industry started to become sophisticated and start to realise um, that it could really start to, with some precision, become. Mingle, sort of become entwined into people's daily lives um, and that it could manage some of this kind of process of entwinement or process um, of attachment. And these kind of, these, these kind of experimental technologies, I guess, 
the logic that informs them are very much the logics that inform the more sophisticated contemporary collections work today uh, in countries like the US, in countries like the UK, with, with kind of um, uh, extensive consumer credit markets. I suppose if that's a story of the rise of a social scientific society as, as much as it mm-hmm. is particular industry techniques, what's yeah. the story of what actually goes on in a debt collection agency now? And, and yeah. that's the subject of, of chapter four. And I, I wonder if you can maybe set that social scientific story in terms of what, you know, the kind of the working life is like yeah. in, in one of these businesses. Yeah, so it's important to emphasise that, I mean, this is a diverse industry and um, uh, when you talk about some of these practices, you can't, you should, one shouldn't assume that they are happening in all companies. And that's actually not, it's not a defence so much as to say that a lot of these companies, a lot of companies in, uh, involved in the work of debt collection are quite unsophisticated and they haven't necessarily adopted some of the more sophisticated techniques. So if you, if you were just to rely on industry literature, which tends to talk about the latest techniques and so forth, you might get a slightly kind of skewed uh, understanding of what actually does go on in some of these companies. I mean, there, there is still a kind of this kind of a portion. I think it's a it's a it's a, it's a shrinking portion. But there's a, a portion who will just will just basically won't, won't use any of this kind of experimental techniques. Will just kind of have their tried and tested approaches um, using kind of forms of um, lay expertise you could call them to kind of inform their collections work. Um, but yeah, so I, I went into a number of collections. I think three different collections agencies spent some time um, observing what they were doing. Um, these are these were some of the kind of bigger collections companies here in the UK. Three of the biggest, actually, here in the UK. Um, two of which I think it's important to understand. There are, I guess, well, I should say there are, I guess, three main components to the collections industry. One of those is what you would call internal collections work. So this is collections work that is being done in-house by creditors themselves. Uh, then there's the so that is part I would call that part of the debt collection industry even though it's not often thought about um, as such the other two parts are the contingency debt collection industry and the debt purchase industry uh, debt purchase industry rose to prominence in, here in the UK in the late 90s and the early 2000s what well, that effectively involved was um, companies buying debts wholesale from the original Creditor. This is a model that was developed in, in the US, uh, I think mainly in the 90s, and it, it led to kind of a boom in collections because suddenly creditors realised they had all this old debt that they weren't really doing much with and they could actually get some, some money with. You know, they, could, they would sell this at you know, a couple of cents in the dollar um, to uh, an external company, but still that was, that, was, that, was, that was great, that gave them some extra capital and it could take some, it take some potential bad debt off their balance sheet, which is very, very important. Um, so this model, so this, this, this is the debt purchase industry, and this is, I guess, before the crisis, it looked like the debt purchase industry was soon going to be all there was when it came to, the, to debt collection. For particularly ironic reasons, that didn't come to pass, partly because what, one of the things with the financial crisis um, that happened was that this, it was, this was an industry that was itself, itself hugely reliant on debt um, to fund its operations, and they needed to borrow to, to take out loans to, to, to effectively buy some of this um, credit with the with the credit crisis of 2007, 2008, there was a huge contraction of credit, business credit, that actually put a real squeeze on their operations, ironically, uh, led to some of these companies effectively going out of business as well. Um, so anyway, that's debt purchase. Uh, and then the other, the other kind of more long-standing part of the external collection industry is contingency collections. What that effectively means uh, involves are companies working on commission. So the ownership of the debt will remain with the creditor, but they'll, they'll collect um, 
debt on commission and often what a creditor will do will have, they'll have a number of different companies working on a particular sort of debt portfolio and these companies are effectively in competition with one another to try and collect um, on this debt and then yeah, I won't get too much into detail about that. So um, I spent time at two contingency agencies and one at debt purchase industry. Um, I'd say that I mean, one of one of the things the spending some time at two contingency agencies um, was helpful in highlighting is the way in which um, you have specialism within the collections industry. So some companies specialize in collecting debt, which um, is older, which is more uh, low margin. So um, one of these, one of the agencies that I spent some time at specialized in collecting debt uh, of, of that sort, whereas another and uh, specialized in, in much debt that was much fresher. So they, they, this is the kind of company that uh, a creditor would perhaps go to as the first port of call on a potentially uh, set of accounts with large outstanding credit balances. And one, one of the things you see is these, these companies um, tailor their approaches accordingly. So the kind of company that deals with the older debt, I mean, to, to, many, to, to a large extent, the, kind of the, the stereotype would be that sitting in a, in a collections call centre would involve listening to people constantly shouting down the phone um, that isn't necessarily the case, and that's not necessary to say. Not to say that, from the debtor's point of view, this isn't experienced as a potentially very stressful conversation. It's just that the model, the business model of these some of these larger collection companies, effectively involves really just pushing at the margins of very small debts. So just getting people to increase their payments from five pounds to ten pounds a month, um, taking it, and 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 crucially, keeping people repaying. So this is a kind of a business that involves kind of the long-term management of some of these people who, are, who have been in default for, for months, for potentially years. And the best case scenario for, some, for somebody like that, from, from the point of view of the, the debt collection company, isn't, well, the best case scenario for them is that their situation is going to change. They're going to, they're going to get some inheritance. They're going to find a job, although for many people that's a remote possibility or certainly a job that pays them. Um, sufficient that they could really make a, a big dent in their debts. Um, so, but but still, there's a kind of waiting game there. So, in some sense, you, what you want to do is keep your attached their debts until something better comes along. And 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 so, in some senses, they, they kind of operate in, to a degree like customer services in part of their operations. But then, of course, another part of their operations does involve pushing for debt, and they do for 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 more money, and they do that in quite sophisticated ways, in quite understated ways sometimes. Um, but but that that's kind of part of the business model, and and then the kind of the, kind of more, the, the agencies that deal with more of the kind of fresher debt that that then you start to see some of the more aggressive um, approaches. And I was able to listen to sort of data banks or databases of recorded telephone calls, and I, I talk I, I go through some of those telephone calls in, in the book to look at some of the techniques that that I use. Debt purchase was particularly interesting because when you look at debt purchase, what you have is a whole collections routine from beginning to end. You can sort of see it over the whole course of a company. So, usually, so historically, this, this process would be divided up. You'd have the kind of, you'd have the original creditor, the original credit card lender, for instance, and they'll do some of the collection and then they'll pass it to a, an external company. They might work it for a while, then they'll pass it to another external company. What the debt purchase industry has specialised in is bringing all of this stuff in-house. Well, I should say some debt purchasers actually buy debts and then they do some analytics and they read, they, they sell some of the debts on to other companies and they kind of, so their business is sort of a kind of middleman. But for, the, 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 for some of the bigger uh, debt purchases and the one I spent some time at, um, you can actually witness the whole collections routine from beginning to end. So they take, they take over debt pretty much, pretty soon after it's gone into default and they manage it 
potentially up until they decide they can't collect on it anymore. Um, and then you can start to see some of these techniques that I was talking about were developed in the US in the 1960s really in action. You see um, analytics being used to, to work out how exactly to, to prioritise debtors. Um, you have in this, the collection company that I uh, was observing, you have the call centre force being divided into different teams. And I call them the, the green team, the orange team, and the red team. That's not their actual names, but different teams. And these deal with debtors at different parts of the uh, different sort of uh, different stages in the collection process. Um, so the green team, for instance, deals with people in a fairly light touch way, ranging from at the other end of the call centre, the red team, who deals with people who are much closer to legal action, will be much more aggressive, will be much more forceful in their dealings with debtors. So this is kind of one way in which you have this kind of process of the, the affective management um, of, the, of the strategic management of affective intensity, I call it in the book. This in turn is then then coupled to some of this um, analytics. So a debt portfolio will be subject to some of this analytics. And um, then just to give an example of the green team has a particular routine, which involves setting, sending a number of letters to debtors. So that's three letters. Each letter is in turn followed up, followed up by a phone call, as a matter of course. But um, after the first letter, the, the sort of gentle letter, what you find happening is that um, uh, debtors will then be will then be categorised according to um, quite sophisticated analysis that's been done about them to try and determine what kind of debtor they are and what kinds of response then will work best with them. Um, if they're deemed effectively low risk. So they don't have a huge outstanding balance. They, the, they show themselves through a variety of metrics to be the kind of people that repay relatively, in a relatively straightforward manner. Then perhaps they'll, they'll stay with the green team. If not, however, they may sort of leapfrog the green team and go straight to one of the other teams, straight potentially to the orange team, potentially straight um, to the red team, to this, this pre-legal team. Um, and what that effectively allows the, the collections company to do is kind of act preemptively to, to kind of manage, manage debtors in a much more sophisticated way and to, be able to just shuffle them around this, uh, these different sort of teams and this, within, that operate within this call centre. You also had, just as a final point on this, you also have within this call centre uh, uh, something which has just kind of been effectively outlawed now here in the, the UK, and that is you had another um, uh, team which effectively was posing as a separate organisation. Um, so it had a separate kind of identity. Letters were sent from, a, from, a, from using different letterheads. And this is what I call trading styles, and that's all about more in, in Chapter 5. But there, so what you, what you have there is effectively the, the, the debt purchaser would quote-unquote pass out the... And once the debt got particularly far down the process, would, would pass it out to this quote-unquote external company, which in fact was just sitting you know, a few feet away from one of the other um, teams. And this, and this process was very common... Uh, in, in the collection industry, and it's something that the, the payday lender Wonga got into, uh, into into trouble for recently. Although, in some senses, you could say that they were they were not unfairly victimised, but it's, it's, it wasn't has not been recognised the 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 uh, degree to what to which this was an sort of endemic practice within the within the collection industry, and it has been for for a while now. As, as I say, it has been it has changed recently. It, it's really interesting because that um, fourth chapter and, and the fifth chapter as well were kind of the lifting the lid um, on how these organisations work gives us a new perspective on, I suppose, the classic kind of here is, you know, a well-built, well-built middle-aged man who's going to, you know, knock at your door and 
yeah, actually for your television. But it, it also points us towards the conclusion of the book, which tries to engage with ideas about, to an extent, kind of uh, escape and resistance mm-hmm. and, and, as you call it, sort of market detachment. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder, uh, as a, you know, kind of um, maybe slightly uh, optimistic note, to, to come to a conclusion on is is what does the book tell us about how we might do these things differently how we might do kind of economy and society differently um, particularly in terms of um, the stressful anxious mm. um, uh, effective elements um, of, of, of this part of the economy well I guess there's two ways <laughs> I guess I'd answer that one is perhaps less optimistic uh, and that is that I think what one of the things that are kind of what you could call a device-inspired approach to the study um, of this particular market, of the credit market, I think shows is the degree to which this, well, is the degree to which what you could call opacity is built into um, this particular kind of set of market encounters. Um, so transparency is obviously something that's seen as a kind of regulatory ideal, Um in relation to consumer credit, often politicians and, 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 and policymakers look at transparency as a way of solving market problems. More transparency leads, in theory, to, to better markets, more efficient markets. These are kind of better and fairer outcomes for everyone. Um, I, in a kind of pessimistic way, find it almost impossible to imagine what a genuinely transparent credit market would, uh, would, would be. Particularly in terms of the techniques you've been talking Particularly about. Particularly in terms of the techniques I've been talking about. I mean, so when it comes to lending, some efforts we made, for instance, to make it more, make it, I mean, there's always a kind of, there's always this, there's this underlying opacity, which isn't actually what I'm talking about. There's this underlying opacity with credit, as with, all, as with many financial products, and that is the uncertainty of the future. So you can never, you can never, you can never, you can never um, confidently, you can never, with, with any um, complete confidence, predict um, the future. And that obviously is, 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 is an opacity which you are dealing with as a potential user of a financial product. Um, but you know, to to give regulators their credit, they have taken some steps to address that in relation to, to borrowing. So you know, when you, when you take out a credit card now, you'll have things like a table that will show you you know likely potential uh, different scenarios and how much you you might have to repay in the different scenarios. And so yeah, fair enough. That's kind of makes uh, kind of increases transparency to a degree. But what I think is often missed when talking about credit is this, this kind of flip side to lending, which is collection. Uh, all lending, all credit that is lent will ultimately have to be collected. Um, when you receive your credit statement every month in the post, that is a soft collections device. Um, okay, that's not particularly one that may not, as long as, as, long as you haven't borrowed too much, as long as you, you can afford to repay that, it may not cause you much in the way of anxiety, it may not cause you much in the way of stress, you, just, you go on with the business repaying and all well and good. However, there's always going to be people, many people potentially, who are not going to be able to repay uh, their debts that, that they took out. And, the, and the, the credit industry, this is a systemic part of the credit industry. Um, and for that reason, there's, there is the, the debt collection industry. And this industry, I think in some ways, has, has, has enabled the existence of the industry and has in, in many ways enabled creditors to kind of outsource a lot of the ethically uh, problematic uh, aspects of consumer credit to, to this kind of external in- industry, which is, well, that, you know, which is um, seen as the industry which deals with the kind of aberrations um, of people's encounters with credit. However, these 
it, it's not a bank that's act, acting unethically. It's not a bank that's yeah. pursuing you. It's not a bank that's making even though, money. even though, in fact, even though, in fact, because partly a result of the kind of global economic crisis, um, default has become come to be seen as increasingly important to the to the work of creditors. So they actually have got far more sophisticated than themselves doing the work of collection. So in actual fact, many creditors now are actually quite sophisticated mm-hmm. collectors as well. Um, so yeah, so and so yeah, the, but when it comes to collection, the debt collections, you, I mean, opacity is absolutely essential. Um, because because you can't lock up people now for default um, the industry has had to effectively create a sequence an almost bewildering array of techniques to, 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 to and, solic- and, and solicitations and prompts and devices which they use in their dealings with defaulters and from the defaulter's point of view even somebody who may I mean, say somebody had read my book for instance and they'd read all about the kind of uh, techniques that might be um, used against them, I would say that probably wouldn't necessarily really help them ultimately because they still are confronting the opacity of things like collections companies in the States um, who might, who randomly put a portion of uh, their uh, debt portfolio through the legal process just to test the efficacy and the profitability of the legal process as compared to another set who, who won't be? There's absolutely no way of an individual knowing whether they're the particular what, the particular set of prompts they're receiving are because these are prompts that uh, they should be read in a straightforward way, or because they're they're part of a kind of a process of experimentation designed to um, to to for the reasons that I talked about. Um, and then within individual letters, you, it's very hard then to know how to read the particular solicitations they receive when when they receive a threat when they receive a threat or a potential solicitation. Sometimes collectors send out things like offers say well if you pay today you'll get a discount off your debt so these are quite positive solicitations it's impossible to know whether um, you should wait should you wait until the next solicitation comes will you get a better offer in the future these are the questions that it becomes impossible to resolve so there is this deep opacity at the heart of the defaulter uh, collector encounter and therefore I'd say a deep opacity at the heart of, of credit which I think any which I think any kind of naive uh, call for transparency wouldn't really not do much to, to challenge. So that's kind of a more pessimistic note. The more positive, I guess, note, we need to ask, what can we do to change? I mean, I guess the question is who we is. I mean, I'd say it's not necessarily... When you look at the kind of most inspiring um, sites of resistance, I think some of these dynamics um, uh, comes not from analysts and from academics and from uh, policy makers it comes from debtors themselves and I kind of end at the very end of the book um, to looking at just one example um, of some of these sites of resistance which um, are these online debtor forums that have sprung up um, here in the UK so the consumer action uh, group uh, forums um, also there are similar um, sites in the US um, where what you find and they're very messy. These sites, you know, there's, there's many, lots, lots, lots going on in these sites. But what you find in, in moments in these sites are are acts of quite vocal uh, resistance and critique of 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 the the credit industry and and potentially the sort of broader socioeconomic um, <laughs> conditions and relations that surround the credit industry. Yeah, that, that make credit a sort of bedrock of how we yeah. do society and, yeah you know, make it impossible to avoid you know, that's right and, and, and for I think, some sections and i think crucially what's really 
interesting about these kind of sites is that this is, these are discussions that are happening in public. I mean, this obviously is, is the anonymity um, that these sites are for, but still you have these discussions happening in public. Debtors are talking with other debtors about their debts, um, which is something that's fairly unprecedented in, in the history uh, of, of modern credit. Um, but I think almost kind of more important is you kind of have people um, acting to support one another through the kind of process of managing managing default. So people upload letters, people ask for advice, um, people sort of say, well, you know, I've got this phone call that's asked me to do this, what should I do? And this acts of this kind of um, really, as I say, messy, kind of bottom-up, I mean, you don't want to idolise it too much, kind of, but nonetheless, kind of bottom-up kind of response um, to some of this, these kind of, these crucial problematics um, of our age. And, you know, alongside that, there are things like strike debt um, and the kind of Roland Jubilee campaigns, which I think are also really important. But in a way, I think that these kind of debtor-led forums perhaps might be kind of, well, I think they, they certainly provide a, a novel way of understanding, I think, some of the, 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 the problematics of default and some of the, kind of the ways in which detachment from uh, markets uh, is being talked about and is being kind of negotiated by by debtors themselves. And is that the kind of thing you're working on in the future or are you doing something completely different? Um, So I have worked um, with um, colleagues um, on these forums more. We've got some um, articles that we're uh, uh, working on under review at the moment, which looks in more detail at some of these debtor forums. So um, John Montgomery and um, Liam Stanley, um, for instance. Um, So yes, to a degree... I'm also um, working on um, a piece of research that looks at new um, credit scoring uh, methodologies that are being deployed, in particular in the payday lending sector, uh, where what you see are is credit is increasing uh, is set, the set of online the set of online sites making credit decisions based. To a lesser extent, and to some extent, and in some cases, to no extent at all, um, less on people's credit scores, people's past um, histories with credit, and instead on an analysis of an extremely diverse set of data. Um, this includes data about um, people's, on- particularly, and this is the thing I've been looking at people's online behaviour. So in the UK, the most prominent site that uses such techniques is, is Wonga. Uh, in Europe, there's a company called Credit Tech that's launched sites in Poland, in Spain, in other Eastern European countries. Uh, Credit Tech in particular claims that it doesn't even rely on, doesn't rely on credit scores at all. Wonga does use credit scores, but as far as um, I've been able to determine, layers over credit scores is coming some of this kind of um, analysis. And this uses really peculiar data to try and, as a basis for, for assessing credit. This includes things like um, what browser an individual is using, uh, their screen resolution, uh, their IP address. Um, Credit Tech, this company I mentioned, European company, they ask their users to um, install a Facebook app. They actually get, they're actually incentivized to do so. They have like a 10 zloty discount on the Polish site. When you install this Facebook app, you have a permission request which, which, grants, um, the, which grants Credit Tech access into an almost bewildering array of data about you as an individual drawing on your on your facebook um, uh, on, on your facebook account uh, and i'm looking at, at this at this kind of nascent industry it's still a small industry but it is a global industry uh, and looking to try and understand in more, with more precision what techniques are being used and of course the politics um, of some of this
Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. David Bryan. On this episode, I was talking to Joe DeVille about lived economies, default consumer credit, debt collection, and the capture of 